Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 29. Psalm 29, Old Testament book of the Psalms, and we're looking this morning at Psalm 29. All right, if I can just keep everything on the table, I'll be okay. (laughs) All right, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, there were pastors and theologians and church leaders who got together in England and put together the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are many confessions of faith, but the Westminster Confession of Faith is probably the most well-known around the world, and probably the one that is referred to most often. And after putting together the Westminster Confession of Faith, they put together a question and answer catechism so that we could learn it. And the very first question in the Westminster Confession of Faith is, what is the chief end of man? And those of you who know it, you can repeat it with me. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Most of us don't think about enjoying God forever. Uh, There was a... uh, there was a uh, teacher in a Sunday school class who was sharing uh, the story of David building the temple with her three- and four-year-old class students. And she was explaining to the students that when the temple was finished, the presence of the Lord filled the temple. All of a sudden, the kids' eyes get big and wide, big as saucers. And she was trying to figure out why they were so excited all of a sudden. And she soon discovered, however, that the source of their excitement was not joy that God had come to dwell in the temple, but rather delight at imagining that huge building filled with presence from God. Oh, through the eyes of a child. But you know, there's truth behind that. And I hope that we will see it today in Psalm 29. Father, we pray for your help as we look at this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now there are four verbs here. Four, I learned uh, that a verb is an action word. Give, 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 and worship. Do you see those four words there? But what confuses me just a tad, or has confused me a tad, is what he says in verse 1, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, or O you sons of the mighty. He's really referring to angels. He's saying to angels, give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. 
Now, <clears throat> there's worship in heaven because heaven is a place of worship. And if you ever want a good picture of what worship in heaven is like, you can go to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 for probably one of the best descriptions of worship in heaven. And without discussing all of the personalities in heaven, I just want to refer to a couple of the, of the, of the songs and the praises that uh, God's creatures in heaven say, speak, or sing. In verse 8 of chapter 4, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And then over into chapter 5, when the Lamb steps forward, Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. The scroll was presented, and the question was asked, who is worthy to open that? And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And then I want you to look at verse 11 if you have that passage of scripture and are looking at it because here is a description of what that worship scene must look like. Then I looked, said the apostle John, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now there's a worship service in heaven. It's a pretty fantastic description. But I must say to you that heavenly worship is always to be duplicated on the earth. God doesn't just expect worship from those in heaven. Look at verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, this is Revelation chapter 5, Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And so when I look at Psalm 29 and I see these four verbs, I know that these are not just addressing the worship service in heaven. God is addressing me. God is saying, I'm to give unto the Lord. That's who I'm to give glory to. I'm to give unto the Lord glory and strength. I'm to acknowledge his majesty and his power. I am to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So he takes the three gives, he turns it into the word worship, 
And then he says that this is who we're supposed to worship. This is what we are supposed to say. This is why we're supposed to do it because glory is due to his name. And this is how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to do it in the beauty of holiness. In the splendor of holiness. That just illustrates that you and I need to be clothed in righteousness. In holiness when we come before the Lord. I I believe it's not our custom today. Certainly not in the north here. But in the south there. And I can't imagine how they used to do it on hot summer days. When it was just sweltering heat. But boy in the south you'd get in your best Sunday clothes to go to church. Right? Those would be white shirts and suits and ties. And, 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 and once again, that, that, you know, God doesn't require that kind of attire from us. We come dressed as we are. We come with uh, polo shirts and, and trousers and, and some of us in suits and some of us in plain clothes. But, but I can't, I, I wonder if years ago, one of the reasons for doing that and the culture caught on was so that we would symbolically give the impression that we were worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness, dressed in our best. I wonder if that were not the case. I don't know, but I just wonder if that were not the case. In verses 3 through 9, after God tells us that we're to give unto the Lord, give unto the Lord, give unto the Lord, worship the Lord... God's power and his strength that we are to acknowledge him for is demonstrated in a description of a storm, a thunderstorm. Look at verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord, verse 5, breaks the cedars. The verse voice of the Lord in verse 7 divides the flames of fire, the lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord, verse 9, makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. Now, I bring that to your attention because God is describing for us a powerful thunderstorm, a storm. And this storm begins over the Mediterranean Sea, and then it comes on to land from that perspective. But I want you to notice that seven times the Bible refers to the voice of the Lord. It is over the waters, it is powerful, and it is full of majesty, first, the first three. And then the next four describes what the voice of the Lord does, breaking the cedars, splintering the cedars of Lebanon, making them also skip like a calf as they, as they, just, uh, as they are forced by the wind to move. And on and on it goes. Now, my favorite passage of Scripture in relationship to this is Job chapter 37. This is my favorite. And the reason why, you're, you're very close to it, so this is one passage you could, you could turn to. In chapter 37 of Job, I want you to notice the words. I'm just going to read it. But I want you to notice the words that refer to storms and the words 
that refer to the voice of God. That's all I want you to see, the connection between the two. At this also my heart trembles and leaps for its place. Hear attentively the thunder of what? Everybody together. His voice. And the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a what? Voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. For he says to the snow, when we, we, can, we could stop before we get there, couldn't we? <laughs> but he refers to the gentle rain in verse 6 as well, and the heavy rain. But here's God describing a storm. And he's describing the formation and the action of the storm. And he describes it as something that he creates by the word of his mouth. Now, I don't have that ability to create by the word of my mouth. Some believers claim they do. But I don't have that. The second thing that I want you to see as far as this storm is concerned is I want you to see the path of the storm because this is really, really important. I said that it started in the Mediterranean Sea, somewhere there in the Mediterranean Sea, and it moves eastward across the land. Notice where it goes. It starts at the Mediterranean Sea in verse 3, and the Bible says that it moves across the land and does its work in the mountains of Lebanon, verse 5. When God says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon, we know where the storm is headed. It is headed across that mountain range, the mountain range of Lebanon, where the famous cedars of Lebanon are. And it continues to move eastward. As it crosses the Lebanon mountains in the northern part of the land of Israel, it moves eastward over land to Mount Hermon. Look at verse 6. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 3, the children of Israel understood Syrian to be Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is one of the highest mountains in all of the Holy Land. You can see it for miles. It stays snow-capped most of the year. And it doesn't make any difference where you are. Almost in Galilee, you can look up and look toward the north, and you can see this huge Mount Hermon. Well, Moses said that the Sidonians don't like to call it Mount Hermon. Deuteronomy chapter 3, they like to call it, and there it is, Syrian. But the storm continues to move across the mountains and across to Mount Hermon, and then it takes a turn, and it takes a turn towards the south, where it travels for about 200 miles until it rests over the wilderness of Kadesh. Look at verse 8. The voice of the Lord makes the wilderness, shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord 
even makes the deer give birth and, and strips the forest bare. And there is where the storm ends at Kadesh. I, I, I'm supposed to visualize this. You're supposed to visualize this, but there's a reason for that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I remember when Hurricane Sandy came up the coast and it just decimated New York and that area in New England. And then it took a turn and it moved across Pennsylvania. And everybody remembers what happened to Hurricane Sandy, right? It came over Fayette County, stood, just stayed right over Fayette County until it died over our county. Now, I, I can visualize all of that. And God wants us to visualize this storm. He wants us to understand the path of the storm. And I think there's a very good reason because there are lessons here that God wants us to understand as far as the path of the storm is concerned. Lesson number one has got to be this reference to Lebanon. Now, the Canaanites, who were Israel's neighbors, believed that the mountain range of Lebanon was where the gods lived. They were polytheistic. They believed in many gods, and they believed in the mountains of Lebanon. The gods lived there, and especially, especially the god of Baal. Now, when I say that word Baal, you understand it probably right off the bat and say, well, I understand the God, God that they called Baal. I understand who that was because he was the one who was the storm God. He controlled all of the rain. <laughs> Today, I don't know if we're much better than that because we say it's Mother Earth. Boy, we should be using Scripture when we talk about weather. We should be describing the power and the majesty of the Lord instead. And that's the point that I think he's making right here. Lesson number one has got to be, there are no gods out there competing with the God of heaven. They're just not there. You'll remember Elijah Elijah gathered together in 1 Kings chapter 18, 400 and some prophets of Baal for a big contest on the top of Mount Carmel, which is overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. It hadn't rained for three years at God's command, and he is challenging the prophets of Baal. He builds an altar. He asks them to build an altar, and he says, you guys call out to your God, Baal, and see if he brings any rain. And they did. And they cried all morning and cried all afternoon and no rain came. And when he said, and Elijah said, okay, that's enough. That's my turn. And he took his altar and he had people take, uh, take, go down to the Mediterranean Sea and bring up barrels of water and they saturated their altar. You remember that? And you remember that God, he called down fire from heaven because he wanted everybody to know that there are no gods out there competing with the God of heaven. They don't exist. They're not there. They're just gods of wood and stone. They're just gods that are figments of our imagination. And you remember that Elijah called down fire from heaven. And God created 
uh, burnt the sacrifice, licked up the water and uh, with that fire, and uh, I think just destroyed the, the altar in the process. But there's a second lesson here as well that I think is very important for us to know as we think of the path of the storm over the high mountain range of Lebanon, over Mount Hermon, then making a sharp turn and heading 200 miles south and ending up in Kadesh. Kadesh, by the way, was the location where the spies came back from Canaan into the wilderness and said to the children of Israel, boy, that is a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's some of the fruit we brought back. Think about the significance, perhaps, of that. But anyway, having said that, let me simply say this to you. Not only are there no gods competing, but there is no nation too powerful or powerful enough to frustrate God's purpose. And number two, there is no nation weak enough for God not to use for his plan and purpose as well. Now, let's look at verse 5 once again. In verse 5, the Bible says, as the storm is moving across the, the cedars of Lebanon, the mountains of Lebanon, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon, the home of the gods. God often uses the famous cedars of Lebanon. And I just, it's, I think it's incredible. They're the, you know, we say the redwood. How many have been to the redwood forest in Northern California? Uh, there's something else to see, aren't they? Well, the cedars of Lebanon over in the Middle East, over on the, on the uh, east side of the Mediterranean Sea, were kind of like the redwood forest are to us. And just to, just, to, um, just to give you an, an idea of what that was like, you'll remember when King Solomon wanted to build the temple, he wrote a letter to um, the king of uh, Tyre and Sidon, the Lebanese, and he said to the king, Hiram, he said, listen, I need a lot of wood to build the temple, and I'd like you to, uh, I'd like you to send some cedars from Lebanon and you know that nobody can cut timber like the Sidonians. That's the letter he sent. He sent it in 1 Kings chapter 5. And, and, and Hiram sent a letter back to Solomon. And here's what he said in the letter back to Solomon. I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do what you desire concerning the cedars and the cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me. And I will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away and then you can pay me. <laughs> this is what he says next. Handsomely. It's a big job. These trees are humongous. The biggest trees in that part of the world. But I share that with you because they represent nations. When God wanted the cedars of Lebanon to represent Israel, he said, you know, in Ezekiel, he says, like an eagle came and he picked a wee little twig off the top of a cedar tree, a cedar of Lebanon, and he came over and planted it, and then you grew and you flourished. No nation's small enough, so small that I can't use that nation. 
And then when he wanted to use the massiveness of the trees, he, to, and he would use a nation, he, he, in the same book, in the book of Ezekiel, he says Assyria, that, that wicked empire Assyria, is like a cedar of Lebanon. They're so high and mighty and lifted up and full of pride, and, and they want to conquer the world and all of this. And God says, you know what? No nation on the face of the earth is powerful enough to tell me what to do. Or wrestle my arm. So those, those lessons are very, very important. But they're, 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 they're critical for us to understand. And, and by the way, after he discusses this, the, the movement of the path of this storm. And, and how it affects the mountain range of, of Lebanon and Hermon. And then finds its way into the, the wilderness of Kadesh or Kadesh. Verse 9, what does it say at the end of verse 9? And in his temple, this is the heavenly temple, everyone says glory. And on the earth, what are we supposed to say? Glory. Okay, I have a final thought. Lesson number one, there's no competing gods. Lesson number two, there's no nation too powerful enough to frustrate God's purpose or too weak enough for God not to use. And number three, verses 10 and 11. Look at 10 and 11. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. Now, that's something to memorize right there. We ought to, in fact, let's read it together. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. So here's, here's God. He's telling, you know, David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying, angels, mighty ones, sons of, of, the, of the mighty, give worship to the Lord. Acknowledge his strength. Acknowledge his glory. And then he uses the illustration of a thunderstorm to describe the power and the majesty of God. And then he concludes so that you and I can understand what it means for us in verses 10 and 11. If I were the kids in the Sunday school class, this, is, this would be the presence of the Lord. Right? Because this is the blessing the Lord sat enthroned at the flood. He caused it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. He caused the windows of heaven to open. He's the one who broke up the fountains of the deep and released the water from the earth. He is the one who waited for the floods to abate. He is the one who brought Noah and his family safely through the flood. God did all of that. He sat enthroned at the flood. Every aspect of the flood for the time it was on the earth, God orchestrated every single detail. And not only did he do that at the flood, but the Lord sits as king forever. And because he sits as king forever, what does he promise to you? And what does he promise to me? Verse 11 the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Now, you've got to keep this in the context of the passage of Scripture that we're reading. The Lord will do what? What does he do? He strengthens us 
for the storms of life. And he blesses us with peace, calm, during and after the storm. Ah. <laughs> See that? Now, once again, I have some fav- two favorite passages of Scripture that I want to close with. The first one is Psalm 107. You're already in the Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 107, all right? Let's go to Psalm 107, and I want to look at one of my favorite passages of Scripture in this. I've, I've referred to this many times, so you're probably going to say, oh, yes, Pastor, I know this. I know this. I probably know it by heart. But I want us to look at it, verses 23 and following. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and the wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Some of you are getting seasick already. I'm just remembering some fishing trips. Starting to get seasick. (laughs) They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. What does he do in verse 29? He calms the storm so that the waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. It just makes the psalmist want to say, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the what? The assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Now that's the first passage of scripture. The second passage of scripture is going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. That's the one I'm going to end with because it's more of an application. If we're to give and give and give worship to the Lord, acknowledging his majesty and his power and his strength, give me a good example, Pastor. Give me a good example of that, and I can't think of a better example than this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. But keep this in mind as we read this, that God promises he will give strength for the storms of life. Doesn't make any difference what the storm is, what the problem is. Jesus Jesus refers to the storms of life when you have a man who builds a house upon the rock, and the storms come, and the winds blow, and The house survives. Jesus was out on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples in Mark chapter 4, I believe it was, and also a parallel passage in Matthew. And the Bible says he was sleeping in the boat, and there was a storm at sea, and they come to Jesus and say, listen, Master, this is disastrous for us. We're not going to survive. We're going to capsize. Jesus says what? He probably doesn't, didn't, he could have just said, peace, be still. But he probably shouted it, peace, be still. And immediately, the storm ceased. The storm ceased. 
But here is the last passage of Scripture as we close today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, David has erected the tabernacle, that temporary residence for the dwelling place of God. And he decides to bring the ark to the tabernacle from its location several miles away. And the Bible tells us, well, a short distance away at this point. But the Bible tells us that it's a big celebration, a huge celebration, so much so that David even gives gifts to every man and every woman in Israel. Everybody gets a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And he appoints the Levites to minister before the ark, and they bring the ark to the tabernacle. And David has this song of thanksgiving. In this psalm of thanksgiving, he actually creates two psalms that are recorded in the rest of the psalms, in the book of Psalms. Psalm 105 is verses 8 through 22, and Psalm 96 is verses 1 through 13. I just want to read verses 23 through 33 now, because this is an example of worship. And I want you to notice the similarity. I want you to notice what God says about heaven and earth and our responsibility and how this relates to worship. Verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. Why? For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared among all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and gladness are in His place. And I want you to notice in the next three verses the similarity with these words. They sound almost identical to Psalm 29. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. As He continues to give reason after reason. Now finally three verses. It didn't take long, did it? Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations... The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Amen.